Play is not something we tend to feel permitted to do much as adults. Play, we might figure, is best suited for kids. And for sure, play has an important role in the healthful development of children. At different stages of childhood, play is where vivid imaginations unfurl, where little physical bodies can grow and stretch and coordinate. In play, kids mimic what they see adults doing, act out small interpersonal dramas, and imagine themselves in the future, developing some of their earliest senses of self-concept. In so many ways, play as kids is crucial to who we become as adults. So why, as we grow up, do we lose our senses of play? In an age that feels so unhappy, so lonesome, and so chronically burnt out, can something like play help us to remember who we really are? From the New Story Company, this is The New Story Is, a podcast that explores the stories, perceptions, and ideas that have come to shape the world today as we know it. Along the way, we speak to talented guests who are championing the new stories that may help shape our collective future for the good. I'm Dave Ursillo. We are joined today by Gary Ware. He's a strategic play consultant, corporate facilitator, keynote speaker, certified coach, and author who helps individuals and teams integrate play into their daily business. With 14 years of experience in the corporate world and having held various leadership positions throughout his career, it was Gary's experience with burnout that led him to discover that his life and his work were missing play. Using the power of applied improvisation and other playful methods to assist people in unlocking creativity, confidence, and better communication, Gary brings a unique skill set and sometimes full-on Star Wars cosplay costumes to team-building experiences, corporate training and development, and keynote talks. Gary was featured as one of the top 100 HR influencers of 2021. He is the author of the book, Playful Rebellion, Maximize Workplace Success Through the Power of Play. Gary, welcome to The New Story Is. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much, Dave, for that amazing intro. I really appreciate it. Well, Gary, let's start with what you tend to mean when you talk about play. So I want to hear you know, your definition or your understanding, even if it's like an understanding of the moment, because I, you know, I know these things do kind of tend to change and evolve over time, even if they keep a seed of something essential, like at the core. So when we talk about play in this conversation... What are we talking about, really? What comes to mind for you when we talk about, especially as as adults, kind of like learning to reconnect with our sense of play? Yeah, play is very complex. As you were talking about in the intro, um, it's something that we understand that kids need and kids do. But as we get older, we forget about it. So when I'm looking at play and as a way to, um, you know, reintroduce it to adults who may have lost that spark. I say play is doing something that you enjoy, that you can get lost in, that can challenge you in a good way. And, you know, at the end of the day, yes, um, there might be some outcomes that you're trying to achieve, but it's not about the outcomes. It's about enjoying uh, what you're doing for the sake of what you're doing it. Yeah. So is there an element of kind of losing yourself in the sense of like finding a flow state or I know that's big in productivity and creative circles. Um, but it also is, is really something that a lot of people seek in their expressions of work as well. Is does flow have an element of that when we're talking about like play as adults? Oh my gosh, you couldn't have said it better. There are so many links to when you look at the definition of flow and play. 
where flow, um, if you follow the work of researcher Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, he talks about when you're in a flow state, um, you are doing something where, yes, you get lost in the time. Time just flows effortlessly. Uh, you're being challenged just enough uh, where you're not getting bored. I feel like play is very similar to that. If you think about anything that you have like any sort of playful activity that you've done, whether it's video games or sport, maybe reading a book, um, that you know feeling that you get where you sort of lose yourself, you know, get lost in the experience, that's just like flow. Yeah, thank you for that. And so, yeah, there was other elements you mentioned too, Gary, of like a sense of enjoyment, uh, losing yourself in something, something that can challenge you in a good way. So there's like an, an element, it sounds like, of like a, a sense of purpose or mission or... Um, fulfillment in the challenge that you're experiencing. And while play can have some outcomes, it's not always being like outcome dependent, it sounds like as well. So I want to kind of step back with you too, though, and, and hear a little bit about how you first became interested in using play as a tool for unlocking creativity and improving communication as you do oftentimes in workplaces. How far back does this story originally begin? Well, it goes all the way back to the beginning when I was young. I've as a young boy, I have always been that playful, happy-go-lucky kid that, um, you know, if, if you ask teachers, I was the class clown. Um, and it was something that over time I lost because, uh, you know, one of the things, and, and I feel like a lot of people can resonate and relate to this, is that as we get older, you know, we have this perception that, oh, play is just something that's afterwards. It's like the dessert. Like, hey, finish your work, then you can play. I didn't right. know sort of what I know now. And so as I got older, you know, wanting to be a functional adult, someone who contributes to society, I kept play at an arm's distance. I was like, oh, you know what? Play is not something that we bring into the workplace. We got to be serious at work. I can only play when I finish my work. But as I quickly found out, the work is never done. And so I found myself burning out a lot where I, you know, would uh, be working, um, you know, 12 plus hours, um, not sleeping as much, not really enjoying myself. But yet the ironic thing is I'm in the job that I chose. I, the job that I went to school for quote unquote on paper, my dream job. And it wasn't until I took an improv class that was suggested for a mentor that I started to rediscover what play was for me. So, yeah, I definitely want to ask you about the role of improvisational comedy or improv. But something I want to latch on to first, I think our listeners will, will their ears might have uh, perked up or peaked. I always kind of mix up the two words. Maybe someday someone will email me and correct me. But listeners might have heard you mentioned that idea of play as a reward for hard work. And that, that's something that you were taught presumably by, by, by elders, uh, parents or caregivers when you were a kid. Like, like a Correct. lot of us did. Yeah. Um, in your book, um, you actually mentioned your book, which is called Playful Rebellion, Maximize Workplace Success to the Power of Play. Very early on, Gary, you mentioned this connection, which I really appreciate, between the Protestant work ethic and um, how entrenched this is in what we now call modern American society and like the post-industrial cultural kind of complex that we live in, which, as you write in the book... 
uh, the Protestant work ethic exemplifies work, sacrifice, and diligence. And you also go on to write and say, um, this stems from a belief about human nature that if people were left to their own devices and did not have regimented, structured work, that uh, basically that people would get into trouble, that we would um, become degenerate, that we would commit sinful behavior, that we would basically like spiral out of control if we did not have these really regimented rules and structures of work. Now, I think to some degree, maybe, but it's a pretty abysmal way to think about human nature. How does this, uh, how, how has play become almost like a countercultural pushback against this deeply entrenched sense of like work, uh, um, play as a reward for work and work ethic being like what we need as animal humans to keep us from <laughs> falling into complete chaos? Yes. Oh my gosh. All right. We're, we're on the same page here. That is why I titled the book, The Playful Rebellion. Mm. Because, you know, over time, I feel like, you know, we have the pendulum, right? Um, so at some point, people had this belief, like what you mentioned, that, hey, if we don't have all this structure, it would just be completely chaotic. You know, we wouldn't want to work. But research has showed, more modern research has showed that, no, that's not the case. We are what are called neotenous creatures in that we retain our juvenile features through adulthood. Um, you can look at any mammal, um, even mammals out in the wild. They play, um, yes, as um, in their youth, but even through adults. Uh, so take, for example, a wild bear. Would you agree that wild animals, they do only what is necessary for survival, right? They Nothing, you know, if it's not going to help them survive, they're not going to do it, right? That's the perception, right? That That's everything that animals do is only about survival, that every bird call is only about mating, that every act of, uh, you know, meandering or existing of, you mentioned like a bear, is only about finding food or getting ready for hibernation. It's a very like cause effect, almost mechanical way of understanding the natural world. I, I have a feeling you're going to say it's yes. not that way. Uh, well, they play. Mm. <laughs> yes. And so, uh Take, for example, uh, yeah, bears. Yes, they, they you know, have very, you know, structured lives. You know, they go out, they hunt food and stuff like that. But they also play. Uh, they, uh, when they're younger, they play as a way to uh, learn um, behaviors. But even when they're older, they find um, that these, you know, all creatures play as a way, one, to stimulate themselves as a way to keep sharp. And us, uh, you know, we're humans we're essentially animals as well um we need that so we are wired for play it's just that we only look at the small sliver uh, of play that where people think it's frivolous it's a waste of time it's goofing off when in reality it's a broad spectrum and there's so many different elements of it and you wonder why so many people are stressed it's because as dr stuart brown mentions in his book uh, play they're suffering from play deprivation they have secluded that part of themselves. They locked it up in a tower uh, not to release it because of whatever, and they're missing it. And so you know, getting you know, to the point, there is this new way of thinking that if we want to succeed um, as a species and we want to have that harmony between you know, doing work and, and leisure, play is that missing link. Mm. I really like that, Gary. Thank you for that that clarification and, and bringing a different dimension into the conversation. Because I think when we talk about like play 
as like the flip side of the coin of like work, we can kind of get lost in the the back and forth of like, well, yeah, like play would be great, but isn't it a privilege? I have to work, I have to do this and I have to do that. And and I don't think this conversation is going to go down the path of like stop working and just hang out. That's not what the, what's at stake here. But mm-hmm. incorporating these different ideas around play as a mindset, as a practice, as an experience of, as we'll talk about shortly, psychological safety. I've heard you say that before, and that's really like gave me a, a gave me a chill, like one of those good chills of like, ooh, there's something really juicy here that we have to explore. And I also want to ask you momentarily about what you've learned in your research and in your work about how the brain is impacted or or positively in, uh, influenced by play. But um, first, I want to latch on to what you said about burnout and the the extent to which we are stressed as people, uh, as fully grown adults with lots of responsibilities, and it varies from person to person. I know a lot of people who are, who are medical professionals, especially in the light of the last few years, the the ridiculously high levels of burnout that people are experiencing, which I recently learned in my graduate school education, burnout isn't just, isn't just like fatigue or being chronically stressed. There are implications like burnout can change your worldview. It can make you cynical or not like people. And that's actually a symptom of severe burnout is it changes your actually your psychological view of life, which is really tragic, although understandable. Can you tell us a little bit about the connection between uh, burnout and um, the modern lifestyle and how how the, the absence of play contributes to these repeated patterns of burnout in the course of many adults' daily lives? Yes. And uh, before I get into that, I, I want to tell a little story. Um, this is this is a, what uh, was told to me as the canned ham story. So there was this mom and this daughter, and they were making a canned ham uh, for dinner. And if you don't know what a canned ham is, um, it's sort of like supersized spam. It's in a tin can. If they use a key and crank, 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 crank it open. Um, and so the mom is preparing it, getting it ready for dinner, and the daughter noticed that the mom um, is trimming off the front part of the ham and, and putting it saran wrap and setting it aside and putting the rest in the casserole dish, put it in the oven. She was very curious, and she was saying, Mom, um, why do you do that? I've been watching you you know, make this, and I'm just curious, and why do you cut it off and put it aside? And the mom's like, you know, I really don't know. Um, grandma did that and she taught me she's coming over for dinner let's ask her I, I i don't know i just that's just what we do and so they you know they asked the grandma when she came over for dinner and the grandma was like so surprised she's like oh my gosh you still do that and she's like yeah that's how you taught me and she said do you know why we did that when you were young and she's like no she said well you know times were rough um we didn't have a lot of money and the canned ham was bigger than the dish that we had to cook it in so i had a few options i can cut off the the front part and set it aside and we have enough for another meal or spend money we don't have to buy a bigger dish and the mom in that moment was like oh my gosh i've been following an outdated rule um just as it was and so bringing that back to modern society back in you know maybe like 40 50 years ago um you know yes hard work was a thing but we had guardrails in place we had mm. moments where, all right, cool. We clock in at nine. We're out by five. We're done. Like there's a complete delineation between work and non-work. And so in those situations, yes, people had leisure. People had things that they did and it mitigated the stress. Uh, you know, back in, you know, the as 
probably even the 80s, you know, before we started getting modern um, communication with email and cell phones, and stuff like that. You know, people, again, had that separation between work and non-work. And so we naturally turned to leisure. And so the burnout rate wasn't as high as it is now. Well, fast forward to now, we have cell phones, we have computers, we have emails. I like to say you shouldn't be able to be reached 24 hours a day. You know, back in the day, the only people that could be reached, um, you know, like that were doctors and drug dealers, I guess you can say. But now, at a touch of a button, someone can disrupt what you're doing and get your attention and you have to respond. So because of that, people are working longer hours than ever before. Um, They are not having that space you know to rejuvenate and that's where a lot of that burnout is coming from and stress is not a bad thing you know stress in um the right proportions um can help us um you know overcome obstacles um you know it's what we need but it shouldn't be the norm when we, when our brains are stressed it's the same you know our brains are prehistoric so when we go through that fight flight or freeze um you know mode in our brains it's just as back in the day if we were being chased by a saber-toothed tiger except it's we're looking at our email. And so the right. problem is before those stressors would disappear. All right. You know, there's something that's chasing you or something dangerous happening. All right. You dealt with it. And then, you know, you go from the um, sympathetic nervous system to the parasympathetic uh, nervous, the rest and digest. Now that sympathetic nervous system is on all the time. And that's not good for us. That's where the burnout's coming from. Mm. Uh, that's exactly what, what you mentioned. It changes our worldview uh, because it is a chronic stressor that is in our lives. And so uh, that's where, again, having a playful mindset um, and inducing play into your day-to-day, play is the antidote. Here's the other challenge. When we are stressed, we it's a challenge for us to play mm-hmm. because um, it's different parts of our brain that are activating um so it's the antidote but at the same time when we're stressed we don't want to do it so there has to be some interventions we have to set up an environment that can help us out yeah so thank you gary let's talk about the role of improv i feel like that will be a good uh a good segue to start talking about like what like what kinds of play we can engage in what it does for us and what it brings up in us that may feel uncomfortable. So I know that improvisational comedy was really important lesson for you, but I understand that you kind of went into it, not expecting it to be an arena for play, but more one of like obligation or like a learning environment. Tell us about improv comedy yes. <laughs> and, and, and what, uh, what that taught you about, um, what that talked to you about the, the, the power of play at a, in like a, an internal, your internal response to, to yes. play in this environment. All right. So, uh, improv, when I say, Hey, what is improv? You know, most people, you know, they think of whose line is it anyway? Um, you know, improv is just in the moment, um, you know, sort of co-creating without a script, as you mentioned, uh, the reason, uh, the reason why I first went into improv was because I wanted to optimize my career. I didn't like Toastmasters and I heard through a mentor that improv is a way that can help you be better, better, better public speaker. It can help you be faster thinking on your feet. I so I so I said, all right, cool. I want again wanted to have a really good career. I wanted to get promoted. I was looking at all those sort of external validation things, and I'm like, all right, if this is going to get me there, sign me up. I almost didn't go because I, I had this fear, like, oh, what's going to happen? Are they going to put me on the spot? They're going to. I have to quote unquote be funny. I was so surprised. I walked into that improv uh, theater 
over 12 years ago. And there were 15 other people just like me. And for two hours, I was completely focused. We played these silly games that um, just made me like it reminded me of recess back in the day. Like when we go out to play for recess and there's no clear agenda and we're just playing for the sake of playing. And it unlocked something inside of me where I went home after that first improv class. I was just so full of joy and excitement, you know, that childlike wonder. And my wife thought I was drunk. <laughs> she <laughs> I had been drinking. And, uh, but I hadn't, it was just improv. And so in that moment, that was the, for me, it was the catalyst that awakened something inside of me. And it started getting me to see something from a different perspective. Um, and I didn't know it then, but I know it now. It was that psychological safety. So mm. with improv, um, and if you're not familiar with improv uh, training, you know, take an improv class. It's not about trying to be funny. Matter of fact, that's the complete opposite. You know, if you're trying to be funny, you're doing it wrong. It's being in the moment. It's, it's a group activity, so you're co-creating with your peers, but it's causing you to be very vulnerable because, again, you don't know what you're going to necessarily say. You're getting these prompts. You're doing these games that are getting you helping you think on your feet. And because you're getting in a vulnerable state, in a safe environment, you start to have uh, what I call the DOSE, D-O-S-E, which stands for dopamine oxytocin, serotonin, and endorphins. Those are the neurochemicals that our brain produces that allow us, one, to uh, to trust the people that we're with, to feel safe, like we belong, to help with creativity and focus. And yeah, it was it was awesome. And, and I loved it so much that I started bringing these silly improv games to my team that I work with. Um, yeah, I was a new director, you know, I had a, a staff that I was responsible for, and I was always looking for you know, like, all right, what what can we do, you know, to to you know help us, um, you know, sort of let loose and have fun, and didn't realize uh, then that, uh, of course, I know it now that these things are planting the seeds for deeper trust, deeper connection, and as a result, we were more productive. Yeah. We, you know, we were able to think on our feet faster and our performance increased, but that wasn't the intention. Mm. It wasn't the intention, but it is a, it was a notable, uh, I was going to say consequence, but that's not the right word. That Side sounds effect. Benefit. Yeah. It was, benefit. it was a, it was, yeah. a, it was a direct and if diffuse benefit to, um, to in incorporating play. And I, I love that lesson from improv, Gary. I, I think it's hilarious that your, your wife thought you were like intoxicated because of like the mood that you were in. Um, but I also love that, that acronym dose for representing dopamine, oxytocin, serotonin, and endorphins. That's what a great one. I don't know if you coined that yourself, but that's what no. I'm going to write down and remember. Um, Please use it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And so here we have, now we're starting to kind of break down the walls, I think around preconceived ideas around what play is and kind of how I set up the the intro, right? About playing on the playground and being in your lost in your imagination, which can feel like as adults detached from reality um, or or escapism or avoidance of reality. And that kind of like natural pushback that a lot of our our hardworking, stressed out, burnt out audience, and I'm including parents in this, I'm including professionals, I'm including folks with multiple jobs, I'm including folks who deal with um 
uh, marginalization and, um, and, and internalized oppression, people who have been made to feel uh, chronically unsafe in, in the world today, in the environment today, um, depending on your lived experiences. Now we're starting to break down this idea that like play isn't just like a little opportune moment to be silly. It is actually something that is helpful and corrective to a lot of the issues that exists in a lot of the a lot of environments today, whether they're social environments, um, interpersonal environments, or workplace environments. I'm wondering if you can tell me a little bit more, Gary, in your role these days as a facilitator and as a speaker. I know you've been pretty uh, creative and clever, and how you've started to uh, almost like Trojan horse <laughs> play into corporate environments. Because I know that you recognized early on when you were starting to uh, consult and, and do these speaking gigs and engagements. You kind of felt like, well, if I tell a CEO we're going to play for two hours, that CEO is going to say, no, that sounds like a waste of time and, and not a great investment in my people. How did you start to kind of like use a little bit of subterfuge or to Trojan horse play into these environments so that people could actually see the benefits uh, and the impacts of creativity and communication, as well as like being something that generates more interpersonal bonds in workplaces. Can you tell us a little about that? Yes. So you're absolutely right. Uh, the people that I, you know, was working for, they, they couldn't go to their boss and say, Hey, we're, we're going to take our staff, which, you know, collectively is worth, you know, thousands of dollars per hour. And we are going to have them stop working for a long period of time. And we are going to play. Because using the definition that most people have that play is frivolous, a waste of time, goofing off, that, yeah, is not a great use of an investment. And so what I did is I met them where they were. And I understood what were their common challenges? What were their pain points? And they were all the same. You know, they wanted to keep their employees engaged. They want to increase trust. They want to help them think on their feet better. They want to help them be more creative. There is a term that was first coined by the military that is now uh, starting to become more common in the, the sort of corporate environment. And it's this term called VUCA, V-U-C-A. And it's an acronym, lots of acronyms today. <laughs> and uh, VUCA stands for volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. This is how the military was um, able to train their special forces to go into any environment and be able to thrive and to be resilient. and we can all agree in today's sort of economic landscape, there is a lot of uncertainty. It is very complex. It's ambiguous. It's uncertain. And because of that, like we need to be able to be resilient. Well, guess what? Play does that. Uh, there's lots of research that shows um, that uh, one that I really like is that it shows that when we're in a play-like state, especially with others, we start to trust them. And when you mm -hmm. trust them, you uh, create that level, high levels of psychological safety, which means that you are willing to speak up uh, and not feel like you're going to be ridiculed. And that is essential for surviving in today's climate. We need to be able to stop on a dime and adjust. But if people are afraid that if they really speak up, they're going to get you know, canned or whatever the case may be, they're not going to do it. So anyways, that is the landscape that we're in. And so what I would do is I would just essentially, like I said, meet them where they are. And I say, hey, this is going to be a training where we're going to be working on these. It's funny, we, we use this term soft skills, uh, but they're not soft at all. They're, I call them essential skills. And yes, you know, what, what are these essential skills that are aside from your technical training 
that are going to help you be successful at your job. And then I would bring these activities. Um, some of them um, I learned in um, my improv classes. Others I've adapted from other mediums. They're all experiential. They're all very, quote unquote, playful. And as a result, what's happening is that they're getting real-time feedback. So um, you mentioned Trojan Horse. That's exactly it. Um, you know, the, the game, you know, seems, you know, silly. I'm like, hey, we're going to play this game. You're going to, you know, get with a partner. You're going to have a conversation. But here's the, the gimmick of the game. Your, um, you know, after your partner speaks, your first word needs to be the last word that they said. The game's called Last Word, First Word. And they go and have a conversation. And then afterwards, I, you know, ask them some questions. Oh, how challenging was that? You know, uh, what did you notice? And, and what they're practicing in real time is a few things. Active listening. Because they can't, um, their first word has to be the last word. They can't do what most people do is as soon as they start to hear what people are saying, they get in their head trying to think of what they're going to say next. <laughs> uh, they have to listen very intently. Also, um, because of that, there's more space in between the conversation. So now we're working on being, you know, we're working on pausing and stuff like that. And so then, you know, we talk about how was it, what were the challenges? And then we talk about what they learned. And then we, you know, say, all right, so now that we, you know, now that we play this activity, what are you going to do differently, you know, in your day to day? So now we're starting to work on transformation mm -hmm. and we're going to start on like actively doing something different. And so that is very powerful. It's different than, you know, if I were to go, Guess what? As humans, we suck at listening and blah, blah, blah. And people are like, mm, whatever. And they're tuning me out in that point. You know, mm -hmm. they may be taking notes, but are they going to apply it? Right. There's this thing called um, the forgetting curve. And in most situations, you learn something. But then within like hours after you've learned it, you're going to forget at least 20 to 30%. When you have a playful, experiential environment, you're more likely to retain that information and be able to use it when the stakes are higher. Interesting. That's really interesting. Thank you, Gary. So I want to ask a question about when you're in these environments. And it sounds it sounds like you've so thoroughly thought through the experience to help people retain the, the knowledge, the lessons by making it applicable. You know, there, there's a really important interpersonal skills like active listening um, and em actively like empathizing and relating to others. We know that what's going on chemically in their brains is they're getting these different benefits to create feelings of psychological trust and safety with one another, which you know are beneficial when you're working with people and you're and you're sharing space with them physically every day or most days. I wonder about Gary, how do you create initial buy-in for folks, and especially if you're feeling skepticism or resistance, whether it's like the culture of the group. Um, or the homeostasis of the group to be a little bit resistant or skeptical, or if you, or, or do you not even need to know that it's there or gauge that it's there to assume that it's there to some extent? How do you start to establish the feeling of safety in the space when you're bringing a room of people together, even before they start to experience the outcome of psychological safety? Is that something that's explicitly cultivated as a facilitator? Yes, I, I'm very intentional about this, of creating that space and knowing that people are inherently going to be sort of skeptical, like, mm, what are we doing? You know, there, there's been so many sort of team building experiences that has left, left, a, left a bad taste in our mouth. Trust falls and, that have gone wrong and things like that. All of that. And so I do a few things. One, the the leaders of the group, I talk with them in advance to you know go over what we're going to do so they have buy-in. 
you know, so they know what the outcomes are um, of what we're trying to do. I take them through some of the activities so that they know like what the sort of hidden meaning of the activity is. And then I invite them to participate because they are going to set the standard. If you see your boss fully bought in and participating, you're more likely going to like participate than if you see them in the back, just sort of like watching like in a fishbowl, you know, you're not going to be as bought in. So that's the first thing. Um, Get buy-in from, you know, the people that hired me and uh, invite them to participate. And then the other thing is I start small. Um, One of the things that I do that seems like a throwaway, however, it is magical in creating very quickly psychological safety and getting people to feel comfortable to explore what's next. Um, I often do a game um, like um, it's called um, That's Me or True For Me. And I, I, it's just simple statements. Like, I'm like, oh, um, you know, if it, if it happens to be true for you, like sort of stand up, you know, sort of look around and acknowledge the other people who also stood up. And if we're virtual, um, you know, turn your camera off and turn it on. And I ask statements like, oh, all right, um, you know, if it's true for you, stand up like, introverts, you know, extroverts, you know, I do birth order. Uh, you know, um, I do things like, uh, you know, how many people, you know, if this is true for you, stand up, like you like sports or you, you like, you have a hobby. And it, again, it seems like a throwaway, but what's happening right here is very magical. One, without speaking, people are seen. It allows them on their own accord to be vulnerable. I tell them, Hey, you don't have to stand up. I don't have a lie detector. I don't know if this is true or not. If you don't feel comfortable exposing, and I usually do a little joke that you like to day, day drink, stay seated. So again, I'm giving them permission. I'm giving them agency to choose how they want to engage. Because play is all about invitation. You ha- you know, you should be invited to play. You shouldn't be coerced to play. That's not true play. And so by doing that, um, then people feel a little bit more comfortable they're going to let their guard down. And then I slowly build up the activities from there. And I start very small. Um, and, and I do just like what we do when we have, when we're uh, dealing with children, I give them lots of positive reinforcement. Uh, one of the things that is a tenet of improvisation is that there's no such things as mistakes. Mistakes are gifts. And so in improv, uh, we learn on day one, if someone makes a mistake, we don't ridicule them, point at them and loser. No, we don't do that. We celebrate, we clap. And what that does, it gives a positive reinforcement to make them uh, feel safe to take risks. And then they, they'll want to like engage even more. So everything's intentional and I, and I build on it. And then by the end, this is what I love. Um, I have yet, I, I hope this is, I'm never proven wrong, but, I, but there's usually one or two people, like you said, super skeptical, like arms crossed, like, what is this thing? And by the end, to see that person more engaged, I'm like, ah, I did my job. Mm. I, I really love how you explicitly work to create um, transparency and honesty about the process, especially with like leaders of the group, and work to give permission and agency of members of these of different groups and in different environments. And you you mentioned there, Gary, this element of vulnerability that can come along with being a part of whether it's um, you know inside a, a corporate event like the one you're describing, um, or just in interpersonal social environments where uh, play 
is it feels uh, vulnerable for adults. And, and you write about this in your book and you talk about it often. Can you tell us about why it is that adults shy away from the vulnerability that comes with play? And I wonder if you could frame it up for us through any examples or stories, not only about like the individual, like internal stuff, because we all know that we all carry uh, a, a natural skepticism around certain vulnerable environments. I wonder also about, um, or I should say, uh, we all carry our own, like uh, we, we're on a sliding scale of how comfortable we are with vulnerability period based on our own personal experiences and conditioning. Then there are different environments in which those those triggers around our feelings of unsafety can be brought out. I wonder if you can talk with us a little bit about um, any examples that come to mind working with clients, maybe examples where an individual or a room has come has has told you after the fact that um, that their feeling of psychological safety has been one that they're consciously aware of as holding them back from play and from vulnerability. And as you've been saying, like that essence of vulnerability is really important for creativity, communication, trust, and so forth. What comes to mind for you? Yes. All right. So first off, you have essentially talked about why adults don't play to play is to be vulnerable because um, as my mentor, Gwen Gordon says, play brings out our unbounded true nature. When you're in a play like state, because it's almost like a hypnotic state, you're just so immersed in the experience that you are just being your true self. You don't have time to have your guard up. You can't do both. You can't have your guard up and, and stuff when you're true, truly playing. And because of that, um, you know, most adults shy away from playing because it's a vulnerable experience. And we've been, you know, told that if you're vulnerable, you know, it, I know the tides are turning, but, you know, the old sort of rhetoric was if you're vulnerable, you, um, you know, can be taken advantage of, you know, vulnerable is a sign of weakness. It's not a sign of courage. I, I know things are changing, but it is still ingrained in us. And so, and we also been told, well, when you're at work, you need to act a certain way. And, that vulnerability, you know, is not something that we, quote unquote, should show at work. I know these are changing, uh, but it's still a challenge for, for you know, for some groups. So, again, they come very stoic and, and they have their guards up and they act like how they, you know, want to act. Now, this is the thing where most, like, I have yet to have a group. Well, no, there's a few people that will say, you know, yeah, we're having some troubles with X, Y, and Z. But no one says it. It's an unspoken rule because again, to say that is to be vulnerable. <laughs> and so most people, um, you know, they just smile. They're like, yeah. All right. Leader says what? You're like, oh yeah, yeah, that's great. But deep down inside, if they were honest with themselves, they're like, I don't, I don't agree with that, but I need a job, you know? And, and if I, if I say how I really feel, what if they fire me? You know, there's all this uncertainty and, and it causes a lot, a lot of stress. Um, and so it, it, it really, it really sucks. And then again, companies, they want, like leaders want their employees to go above and beyond. They want to do all those things. However, if the environment doesn't, isn't conducive to that, then, you know, people are essentially just, I wouldn't say they're phoning it in um, because I don't think anyone's going to say, I'm not really working, but they're not living up to their full potential. Uh, there's a thing, um, there's a amount of energy. Um, there's like, I think it's called activation energy. Um, but basically, when we're at work, we have essentially enough energy to do our basic job. <laughs> you know, 
all the things that we need to do. And you have this reserve of energy. And most people, they look at the the people that are uh, the toxic ones, and they think they're the majority of the people that you know are causing uh, a ruckus. But they're a small percentage. Though that's a small percentage of the people of, of a, an employment uh, um, uh, sort of population. The big percentage are the people that have that sort of reserve of energy, and they're using it to just hide under the radar. Mm-hmm. I, I don't want people to see see me. I, I just want to just just float by. And again, I don't think they're intentionally doing it. It's all an unconscious thing. And then there's another small percent that go above and beyond. Leaders want everyone to go above and beyond. But again, they haven't created that environment where people feel safe. Right. And so, so I'm setting up this picture just to say that is the norm for a lot of companies. I come in um, and I do, um, you know, I do my training. I'm usually brought in as like a team building thing. You know, hey, we have an offsite. We want to do something. Something, you know, that's going to challenge us, um, you know, but, you know, some somewhat enjoyable and there's some lessons that we can take away, um, you know, so we can feel like it's a good investment. And I do exactly what I told you. Um, and so then the magic starts happening. So I'm going to tell you two stories. One, um, they, we were doing this activity where I had everyone sort of w- – w- it was a spacewalk. They're just walking around the space. I'm giving them instructions. And they're just going to sort of internalize how they feel about – the space and whatnot. And, and for, uh, during the spacewalk, I would have them, uh, do a few things. One, um, every person they come by, they sort of ignore I'm like, Oh, and then, and then I have them switch like, Oh, every person they go by the like, Oh, smile. And then we make it extreme. Like, Oh, act like they have cooties, uh, and stuff like that. And then, Oh, act like they're your best friend. So they can experience those things. And we go over and over and I'm just sort of switching through it. And then we, we just discussed it. And I said, how many people felt, more comfortable when I said, um, ignore, you know, some hands raised and I'm like, Oh, okay. Tell me about it. Um, it's like, Oh yeah, that's normal. You know, that's our normal. All right, cool. Great. How many people didn't feel comfortable? There was this gal, she raised her hand and she said, yeah, I just feel like people don't want me around. Like I, you know, that, you know, I'm a bother and stuff like that. And I was like, Okay. Thank you. Thank you for your vulnerability. People are speaking like, so now we have a little bit of vulnerability, but in that moment, because that person was vulnerable. That person shared a true story of how they felt in that environment. Granted, this has nothing to do with the day-to-day, but it has everything to do with the day-to-day. Mm-hmm. Uh, because we're talking in the context of this game, but we're all intelligent beings. We can connect the dots. This executive, uh, one of the sort of <clears throat> arms crossed, back of the room sort of folks, he raised his hand. He's like, wow, I didn't realize that I was affecting people this way. I was like, oh, please tell me more. I invited them to, you know, sort of uh, go a little bit deeper. And he said, um, and this is pre-pandemic, so, um, you know, people were, you know, mostly at work and, and, and whatnot. But I feel like things are even more true now that we're like sort of in this sort of hybrid mode. But nonetheless, he said, I would be in my office and, and I have to go to a meeting or I have to go to the, to, um, you know, the break room and stuff, but I'm laser focused. So I'm like, but I didn't realize, and this is his words, not mine, me doing that, ignoring everyone, is causing a wave of despair throughout the office. Mm. They came to that conclusion themselves. Wow. And then he said, and I said, so with this knowledge, what are you, what are you going to do differently? And he said, you know, instead of like feeling like I need to hurry, you know, what if I make eye contact, you know, smile more? Oh, cool. So now we're affecting their day-to-day 
through this simple activity because they started connecting the dots. So that was the first thing. And then another one was with a different group. Um, you know, afterwards, like I said, the activities get a little bit more challenging till like the last one is really inviting people to just be silly and whatnot. And I had someone come up to me and said, Gary, what did you do? I was like, what do you mean? And they described a participant and they said, she's been so shy. Like she doesn't really talk to anyone. And she got up at the end and she did that activity in front of everyone. And, and she was like so full of joy and stuff like that. And I was like, all right, cool. Awesome. That's great. And I, I had no idea. Like, you know, I'm just as a facilitator, you know, just creating this environment. And then the cool thing about, again, play and about creating a space where people feel comfortable, we're naturally going to come out of our shells. We're naturally going to, um, you know, push that barrier. Now, I'm not saying we're just like ah, crazy, like, you know, people think like what happens when you play, but it creates an environment where people can be their true selves and we can um, lead with love and joy. And I know that might sound like uh, some hippie West Coast stuff, but that is the environment that we need if we want to get to this next level in this very uncertain, complex environment. Instead of forcing people, um, I like to say, and I mentioned this in my book, um, I learned this from my mentor, Gwen Gordon, most people see the world as a proving ground where they have to prove to themselves and others that they're worthy. And by doing that, um, it's not saying that you're not going to be successful. A lot of people are very successful. However, what that does, it makes us see people as competitors and it makes us be very scarcity mindset. Um, however, another option is to see the world as a playground. And when you create that environment like um, I did with these um, experiences, people start to see people as playmates. Mm. They they see the world as possibilities. They unlock what I like to call, um, you know, being childlike, not childish. Mm. They're being creative. They're being um, curious. They're coming from a place of empathy and love instead of I need to compete against you, zero-sum game, there can only be one Highlander. <laughs> oh, that's that's great. I love that idea of of play bringing us to a state of being childlike but not childish. And it strikes me too, Gary. I'm 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 getting like flashbacks throughout the last you know last few years of like pandemic to endemic living. Um, how so many people report feeling a difference socially uh, among others, not only because of the what has become an uncomfortable, just like unfamiliar situation in interacting with people in groups again after lockdowns and prolonged lockdowns, but uh, an increased feeling of of non-safety with other people and how few moments of spontaneous joy or exchange, like, I don't know if it's just because I'm getting older or if it is more reflective of a social cultural moment, but I, I just feel like 10 years ago, people were nicer to one another on the street that could be about where I'm living. That could be just confirmation bias. It, it could be a culmination of a lot of things that have been happening socially, politically to, to shift what is normative and expected. But I love the idea. It, you know, The more I hear you talk, the more I'm struck by how play really does feel, not to overstate anything, but it feels like it's a key to really reminding us something about our essential human nature that we have been losing, if not just because we're, you know, quote unquote, growing older as we all are every minute of every day. But maybe it's something that we're we're really losing socially because of prolonged experiences of burnout and and so on and so on. 
So, uh, you know, we're, we're rounding towards the, the end of our time, Gary, and I want to ask you a couple more questions that are important yeah. and I don't want you to, to hurry them, but they are, um, I think they'll be great ways to end our conversation. So yes, first and foremost, what is a way that someone who's listening can start to seek out or embody more of this playful childlike spirit and energy for themselves? Where, where would, where could, I know it's going to be individual for the person, but like, how do you advise someone to begin in like dabbling in incorporating more play into life, generally speaking? Yeah. The first thing is I asked the question when you were younger, what were the things that you did that brought you joy that maybe you have set on the shelf Mm. and you've put aside because you don't have time? And how can you incorporate that in your day-to-day, even if it's as quick as five minutes? That is the first thing that I would ask. Mm-hmm. And, and get them to, and like you said, it's very personal. And it will require some creativity because it might not be as simple as, you know, oh, I'm just going to go buy this. I worked with someone during the pandemic and she, her form of play used to be travel. And that was sort of, cut and she couldn't do that during the pandemic and so she was suffering and she was looking for that sense of joy and she used to play with dolls she didn't want to go buy a doll and i said no it's all good don't don't worry about that but what does that mean what did it symbolize and she said oh it's nurturing yeah i was i love doing that and she she made the connection of oh i can nurture in other ways and for her it was through plants and so that was something that she allowed herself to get lost in. Mm. And this is the final question, Gary. I want you to think a little bit like bigger, 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 bigger picture. Thinking about society writ large and aspirationally. In your view, what would you say a society that truly values play would look like or feel like? What What would you like to see the new story of play become in our world? What comes up for you? Wow. All right. Let's look big, big, uh, big, big picture. I see adults seeing play as not a frivolous activity, but as an essential part of their lives. They take play and playfulness to create environments where people can feel included They use it as a way so that we can all see things from a different perspective. We don't have to necessarily agree, but we create an environment where we can all thrive. And, and as a result of that, you know, we are, you know, we can live our our, our best lives. And I know that seems like very utopian, uh, but I feel like in small increments, uh, we can get there. And the first thing is changing our perspective on what play actually is. Gary Ware, he's a strategic play consultant. You can check out Gary's book. It's called Playful Rebellion, Maximize Workplace Success Through the Power of Play. You can also find Gary at BreakthroughPlay.com. Gary, thank you so much for this conversation. I, I Even just talking about play, I feel all of those positive benefits to to play. Um, I feel a real sense of kinship with you just in having this conversation. Thank you so much for your work. Thank you for your education and advice for us today. And uh, I'll look forward to getting my play on as soon as we hang up this call. Thank you. 
No, thank you, Dave. Uh, thank you for holding the space for these stories to happen uh, to get out in the world. Uh, we really appreciate you, and we, we need you to do more of this. So thank you. And thank you for listening to this episode of The New Story Is. My name is Dave Ursillo. Please follow and subscribe to our show so you do not miss a new episode. We have incredible interviews coming every week these days. We hope you're enjoying the new content that we've been putting out for you. Please leave us a rating or review on your podcast player of choice to help others find and enjoy the work that we're sharing. Thanks for listening. Stick around. Stay tuned. And as always, my friend, story on.